today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. As we, uh, we're, oh no, we're not winding it up. We're only halfway through week number 57. Uh, feel free to, uh, send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, the podcast edition of the commentary on George Floyd is waiting for you on Facebook and Twitter. Feel free to, uh, jump into the fray. Uh, many are asking how my anniversary was last night. <laughs> It was fine, fine. Although I love Scott's uh, Radley story. So basically what happened was uh, my wife and I totally forgot our anniversary, completely forgot our anniversary, both of us. Uh, and like didn't think of it last week, two weeks ago, or a day or two, nothing. And then uh, I'm on social media in the morning, you know, firing up the office and stuff, starting work, and a picture pops up on my Facebook. You know, the, those memories. Uh, share your memory from a year ago. And that's what the caption was. And I looked at it. And it's a picture of my wife and I on our wedding day. Uh, and I sent it out a year ago because it was our 20th wedding anniversary, uh, celebrating it in lockdown. So that came up. And uh, I'm looking at it. It's like, why, am, why is there a picture of me and, and Eileen um, on our wedding day? And then I'm reading it. Oh, I'm looking at the date. Oh, Oh, and I must have looked back and forth about half a dozen times before I realized today was my anniversary, meaning yesterday. So I walked into the kitchen and said to my uh, lovely wife, happy anniversary. And she looked like she saw a ghost. She had no idea. And then my daughter, who's sitting at the kitchen table, just busts out laughing. Well, at least you both forgot. Better story, Scott Radley. He's at a baseball game, baseball tournament with his family, his boys playing. And this was in Buffalo. His boy cranks one out of the park. It's a grand slam. So Scott, being the dad he is, he ventures out into the park to find the ball over the fence to keep it as a momentum, memento. So he grabs the ball. He eventually finds it and gets back to uh, his wife in the stands. And, you know, they're saying we should write the date on this. And, you know, so she starts writing the date. And then they both look at each other and realize, oh, my God, it's our anniversary. It takes a home run, a grand slam to figure it out, or maybe just a little reminder on Facebook. Uh, anyway, uh, we all survived, and uh, thank you for the well wishes. All right, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Alyssa PR pop uh, culture expert, and talk about everything PR-related in the news today. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Happy anniversary, Scott. Thank you. <laughs> Better late than never, eh? What the heck? <laughs> uh, before we get started on what we actually told you we were going to talk about, I'm going to throw you a, a curveball here. Your thoughts on what we've seen transpire in the United States, uh, obviously surrounding the murder of George Floyd, uh, a, a, a historic uh, decision yesterday. It's being called historic, although many are questioning whether this will actually uh, instigate change. Uh, I wrote a commentary about this today. Is it about us advancing morally or just technology advancing uh, us and showing us that nine-minute and 29-second video? Your thoughts on watching this whole thing transpire? I think that there's been a lot more um, airspace that has been given time and uh, time and they're given to the actual um, team who shot that video. Because I think had that 9 minute and 29 second video not been shot, I think that Derek Chauvin would be still patrolling the streets. And that everyone would have defaulted and the justice system would have defaulted as to it's uh, not the police, it's uh, this um, it, it was George Floyd. But that really um, shifted things and it shifted the narrative. And, you know, much of my social media feed has been filled with, you know, we saw a murder happen 
over nine minutes and 29 seconds, but it took three months and uh, in a courtroom to figure out that Derek Chauvin was guilty. Mm. So I think that what it says is this, is that um, for once, due process was due process and the right person was charged. Um, this will not bring back George Floyd, but I think that it does set a precedent in putting those bad cops on notice. And, you know, there are... There are a ton more good cops than there are bad cops, Scott. And I mm-hmm. think that we have to remember that. But it's the bad ones that we see on TV, that we see in uh, in clips on our social media feeds, doing these things that are just wrong and dangerous and in sometimes, in some cases, lethal. And I hope that this is a beginning to changing that behavior. Because no sooner had the George Floyd verdict come out, but then there was another killing of a young black 15-year-old girl who had uh, allegedly called the police because two girls were fighting outside her house. And she ends up with four bullets in her chest from a white, I believe it was, Oklahoma-based police officer. So we still have a long way to go. And I think that this is really just a first step. My own personal feelings, and echoed by many, is that I think everybody breathed a sigh of relief. Because up until the verdict, what we heard was that cities were boarding up windows, they were getting ready for riots. And in many cases, I believe that, you know, I don't think there were any riots. I think there was just uh, a lot of celebration. So I certainly hope that this is the start, albeit it's a very small start, to, to systemic change. Uh, we're all waiting for some sort of, uh, as you said, systemic change, uh, change within organizations, change within institutions. What sort of message does this send to the individual who is in law enforcement? Over and above the departments, over and above everything, you know, the big, uh, you know, the big institution of it all. What does this mean to the to the to the person on the street? Well, to the person on the street or to the, the cop, cop on the street? Sorry, the, the cop, cop on, the on the street. Yeah. To the cop on the street, I think more so than ever, it means that, you know, there's a lot more citizen journalism happening, that there's a lot more people who are aware of you know, the bad cops and the work that they do. And I think what it says is that there are more eyes on them than ever before. You know, where where in the past it was whatever happened uh, within uh, an arrest or at the police station or uh, in the case, nobody really knew. Nobody really knew. But, you know, it has been so amplified, the um, amount of attention that is now on police forces uh, everywhere, in every county, in, in every province, in every city. And it just means that there is probably more concentration and more focus and that even like the smallest, the smallest thing can, can become uh, an issue if it if someone wants to make it that. So it's a very tough time, I think, right now. Uh, I mean, I haven't talked to any you know, of, uh, police about this, obviously, but I think it's a very tough time to be a cop right now. Yeah. I think that most of them went into it with the right sentiment and for the right reasons that they really did want to serve and protect. And then there was that small few that just brought their bully personality with them and it never changed in turn you know when they became officially became police but i think that there's less of a tolerance for that type of cop than there ever has been before all right let's move on to uh covid19 we obviously know where we are are canadians aware of what's happening in other provinces or are they just locked on 
you know, what goes on within their boundaries. And, and I, I guess the reason for the question, uh, we've certain, and I've talked about this at, at length, that the provinces are just getting hammered here. Uh, they're taking the brunt of the anger uh, and, and, and asked to lock down all the way across the country, not just Ontario. This is going on right the way across the country. They're locking people down. And yet, you look up in the sky and there's planes all over the place. There's, there's people flying in and out. 17 flights last week into Toronto with positive, uh, COVID-19 uh, tests. That's exposing theoretically 2,500 passengers. So how can you be asking us to lock down when there's people coming in from other countries, uh, especially India? And we all know, you know, the terrible time they're having with, uh, the new variants in that country. That drives me crazy, Scott. I have no idea why we're supposed to have closed borders on either side of this province, yet we have people coming in from countries with double mutant variants. And the planes are just landing, and the people are deplaning, and hopefully they're going into hotels. No testing. And, and, uh, great. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. And then you have Trudeau going on TV saying, come on, people, we just need to hunker down. Well, who? Who does that exactly apply to? Just us? But certainly not, uh, you know, everybody else that you're allowing come into this country. You know, there are best practices everywhere around this world. You saw, we all saw what was going on in Australia. We saw what was going on in New Zealand. And they just, they just opened the borders to one another. So why can't we follow this example in order to control the variants? I don't understand. You know, you know, the federal government wants the provinces to enact all these messengers to a message, um, all these measures in order to, you know, get the numbers under control. But what are they doing? And it's just in such direct contrast. It's like, okay, well, you guys do this, but we're not going to change any anything else. It just seems bizarre that the UK has banned flights from India. And they're way past us in vaccination. They're like, they've already opened up. They're like the United States. And they have banned, or will as of this week, uh, Friday, banned flights to India. Yet, the you know, the PM saying we're open to any suggestions. Why would this be happening now? Shouldn't these decisions be made before you lock the rest of us down? Honestly, you know, there is no rhyme or reason to any of these decisions. Uh, and it's crazy. And yet... You know, you originally asked me, do you think that people are aware of what's going on in other provinces? And the answer is yes, I do believe that they are. I think they're aware of what's going on in different provinces. I think they're all very aware of what's happening in, in other countries. And when you know what's happening in another country and you know the planes are landing from these countries into our city and people are deplaning and then mixing with our own population, I, I, I listen, I'm not a scientist and I'm not an epidemiologist, but I can kind of put two and two together to figure out what's going on here. You drive the streets of Toronto, and let me tell you, there's nothing going on. There is nothing happening here. And yet this is all because we have been doing some sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, whether we're listening to the science or we're interpreting the science in, in, in the way that they see fit in order to try and save business. It's, it's all been a bad gash, and it's really come to a head. And I found that when Ford put us in this last lockdown, people were generally, there was such a malaise among my yeah. friends and I guess just among many other people that, you know what, enough is enough. I hear you. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa PR talking about uh, specifically why are we being locked down while people are flying in and out of other countries. Uh, Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Okay, and I still want to know where Doug Ford is, Scott. 
Uh, apparently, he's <laughs> tested negative. You know where he yeah. is? He's in the freezer with all of the uh, AstraZeneca vaccines. <laughs> yeah. All right. I know we never even got to that. All right. We'll, we'll chat again. Thank you, Alyssa. Okay. Yes, exactly. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, my take on uh, the whole George Floyd situation and uh, the justice being served down there. Waiting for you, the podcast edition of The Commentary on Facebook and Twitter. Is this really uh, an advancement of our morals or just an advancement of technology? And once we are faced with watching a video that's 9 minutes and 29 seconds long of someone being killed, is that what it takes for us to change? It's not that it's our morals. It's, ooh, look at that. So is it technology that's brought us forward or or our change in attitude? Uh, who cares? As long as technology helps to change the attitude, uh, I'm sure we'll take it any way we can. Feel free to weigh in on that. Also, send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone line's always open. All right, let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. Lots to talk about in regard to China and Hong Kong, uh, including a couple of headlines. Uh, a judge to release a decision uh, today on delaying the Huawei CFO extradition case, and Hong Kong's autonomy has been tragically uh, destroyed. Let's bring in Charles Burton now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Good to hear from you. Nice snowy day here in Niagara. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, should I take my snow tires off or not? And my goodness, it's a good thing I didn't. Yeah, no, I moved out the lawnmower and cut the grass, and now i got to readjust the, the garage and bring the snowblower forward. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. Well, that's Canada. All right, so let's talk about uh, some recent developments. First of all, let's talk about the Huawei CFO case and what is happening today in court and, and the request to delay the extradition case. Yeah, I, I think it's unlikely that Associate Justice Heather Holmes of the B.C. Superior Court are going to buy this further delaying thing. And the case is drawing to a close. You know, it should be really settled in May as to whether the U.S. extradition request meets uh, for, for Ms. Mung to be sent to New York State to face these charges of bank fraud are, is justified or not. You know, whether there were irregularities in the process of her arrest or that the United States doesn't have a, a valid uh, reason to extradite her and are simply making up these uh, claims and so on. So they, the Huawei uh, lawyers first of all, tried to get documents out of uh, the U.K. saying that the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank was not defrauded because they already knew that Huawei was violating the, um, the Iran sanctions regulations and therefore, um, you know, they were fully aware that they were taking a risk in, in financing Huawei's operations in Iran that, that, that the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank could be excluded from the U.S. banking system. They couldn't get that information out of the U.K., they tried again in Hong Kong, and apparently, according to her lawyers, have obtained an enormous amount of documents, and they require three months to look them over. Well, it's a bit rich. I mean, on the one hand, you know, you don't want to delay this extradition any longer than necessary. And on the other, it looks like her lawyers are really trying to, to you know, to test, to try the case before it gets to court in, in New York. In other words, this is not really about whether Ms. Mung is 
is innocent or guilty of the serious charges against her, but whether she is eligible not or not eligible for extradition to the United States. And so, um, you know, I guess uh, lawyers get lots of billable hours by delays, and I think the Huawei company really, really doesn't want to see their uh, CFO in the hands of the United States where she might be prevailed upon to do a, a plea bargain deal or something and provide the U.S. with information about Huawei's relationship to the Chinese security and military that, that you know, Huawei would not like to have come out. Is So is this a Hail Mary for her legal team? I'd say so, yeah. I, I, I'll be surprised if, if Justice Holmes goes for the further delay. There's really very little justification for it, and, and Huawei has not actually produced any evidence that they have anything in there that would materially affect what's already gone on with the extradition hearing. So uh, say this uh, moves through and is is denied, as you're suggesting, you were talking about May. What would happen in May, then what? She would appeal, I think, you know, and and then there would be, you know, further, further delays. I mean, they could spin this thing out for years. Uh, it, uh, you know, let's hope not. It would be highly desirable if, if she feels that she's innocent of these charges, that she simply go to New York State and defend herself, and then, uh, you know, if she's innocent, then she'll be allowed to simply go back to China. Is it in her best interest to delay this as long as possible, or is it in her best interest to just uh, let justice uh, run its course and prove her case? Well, I think, you know, in previous cases, we've had the person being extradited to the United States work out a plea bargain where they go there, and get a reduced sentence uh, in exchange for um, uh, facilitating the process and providing the U.S. government with fulsome information about the um, the alleged crime. This happened in the case of a Chinese military spy, Su Bin, back in 2015, who you know had purloined hundreds of gigabytes of Boeing aerospace data, um, but he was doing it from Canada, and the crime occurred in the United States. So eventually he... He gave up fighting the extradition process, went to the United States, went states' evidence, provided the U.S. with a lot of useful information about the Chinese government's military spy program, and uh, is living, I presume, I presume under some sort of witness protection program in the states. I'm not sure about that. Ms. Mung could do the same thing. You know, she could be honest and uh, and get out of this. Um, I have a feeling that that's not going to happen, though. I think I think she'll try and stay in Canada for as long as possible, hoping that something will break. And there's always a possibility that if we see a majority Liberal government in the next election, that the government would decide to resolve this through um, the Minister of Justice declaring it's not in the Canadian interest to proceed further. That would go very strongly against public opinion, but you know, if there was a majority, the next election wouldn't be for four years. When does this become detrimental to Huawei? At what point do they fish or cut bait? I, I think they, they want to spin this out as long as possible so that they can get contracts as many as possible for the installation of the 5G technology into global telecommunication systems, including Canada. I mean, let's remember, two years on, our government has still not made a decision as to whether to ban the Huawei 5G on security grounds, unlike virtually all of our allies and all of our partners in the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Consortium. So, you know, it's conceivable that um, 
unless there, you know, unless information comes out that demonstrates that Huawei is in fact acting on behalf of Chinese military intelligence in their installations, that um, that we will go for it. And once we've got the 5G installed, you know, with the Huawei technology, um, we're stuck with it. Now, there's already been a revelation last week that Huawei technology in the Netherlands was being used to spy on their prime minister's um, uh, communications. And so, you know, how much is it going to take before our government recognizes that it would be better if we went with 5G technology from a supplier that comes from a democracy and an ally rather than from a strategic uh, competitor as China is. And again, at the end of the day, it appears all the Canadian uh, high-tech companies have already done that. They're not waiting for the government. They're using other sources. They're using it now, but, you know, the, the Huawei stuff is cheaper. So from the Canadian telecommunications company's point of view, who, you know, don't have an explicit mandate to protect Canadian security, putting in Huawei would, would be good for their bottom line. So I don't think we can, if the government approves Huawei 5G, I think we could see some of that going into um, TELUS and Bell, but, uh, you know, let's hope not. So this could still be years before the the, uh, the Huawei CFO is extradited to the United States. This could still drag on. Yeah, we could be talking about this as your hair and my hair gets grayer and grayer, Scott. So where does this leave the two Michaels? There was some chatter a few weeks ago that there was some movement. Uh, any more there? They haven't seen anything. I mean, you know, the trial really didn't make any difference. I mean, they're still in Chinese prison hell for the foreseeable future. Um, uh, you know, I think that the Chinese government eventually should get to the realization that holding Michael Kovrick and Michael's favor is not helping them in any way whatsoever and in, in fact is leading to more and more um, stronger feelings in the Canadian public against Canada engaging with China. So it didn't work. They haven't been able to use it to uh, to leverage the, um, the Canadian judicial process with regard to Hmong. And so I think it's time for them to fish or cut bait and let those men come back to Canada. All right, let's talk about uh, Hong Kong, Charles. Obviously, uh, under UK rule for, uh, I guess, up until 1999, uh, and then transferred back to, to Chinese rule. Uh, everybody was hoping at that point that uh, China would become more like Hong Kong as opposed to uh, Hong Kong becoming more uh, like China. And, of course, the latter has happened. Have we lost Hong Kong? I think we have. Um, you know, it's a situation where the Chinese government made commitments to the international community uh, in the Sino-British Joint Declaration um, of 1984 that they would maintain the existing freedoms of Hong Kong and allow for um, uh, election of the Hong Kong uh, chief executive officer by 2017 um, and would maintain Hong Kong as it is for 50 years past the date of reversion to Chinese sovereignty, which was July 1st, 1997. They have reneged on that and, you know, now we're, whatever, 26 years early, they're basically turning Hong Kong into a, uh, an, an ordinary Chinese city. And uh, the people of Hong Kong who, you know, cherish their freedoms of, of um, political expression, the freedom of their press, their ability to travel, and uh, the ability to have education for their children, which isn't Chinese communist propaganda, are uh, 
feeling very badly done by, and those who have the courage to protest are ending up in prison. How does this affect Canadians in Hong Kong? I think that, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the idea that the Chinese government will not recognize Canadian passports of persons resident in Hong Kong who are of Han Chinese ethnicity is definitely on the agenda. So, you know, if we do have a situation where a Canadian is arrested for political reasons, which is almost inevitable, um, it's quite likely that the Chinese government will not recognize their um, their consular privilege as Canadians and will not give us access to them, not that it would make an awful lot of difference under the Chinese system, and they could be sent to China for trial um, under the new uh, Hong Kong security law provisions and end up, uh, you know, in the same... Uh, prisons as Mr. Kovrick and Mr. Favor. So it's pretty serious. I think, um, you know, I think it would be wise for Canadian citizens in Hong Kong to come back to Canada, and, you know, where it's relatively safe. But, you know, as, as the article you refer to um, points out, the Chinese agents of, of menace and coercion are active in harassing persons of Hong Kong origin here in Canada who are trying to get the message out that uh, the rights of Hong Kong people are being violated and that Canada should be standing up for for freedom and democracy as those are our Canadian values. And so, you know, the fact that our government is not doing enough to protect those people and to declare persona non grata the Chinese diplomats who are complicit in this kind of harassment or the agents of the Chinese state who are making threats against people here in Canada is uh, pretty appalling. And uh, I hope we can... Uh, get our government around to the idea of taking this more seriously. Uh, is it still attractive, and you sort of answered this, still attractive for Canadians to be there? How difficult is it for them to go back and forth now? Is that an issue? Uh, well, I mean, the, the COVID regulations presently are, right. are essentially inhibiting um, moving back and forth, uh, uh, particularly for people who are not residents. So, but, I mean, certainly it wouldn't be a place that uh, Canadians should go as a tourist destination. It's simply too dangerous uh, with the risk of arbitrary arrest. And I think for business, it's going to be harder and harder to do business in a Chinese environment where you don't have the free flow of information and increasing involvement of Chinese communist business networks in the uh, business decisions that are being made. So the the comparative advantage of you know going to Hong Kong and, and being able to deal in what was one of the freest um, markets in the world with a with a protection of an independent uh, rule of law judiciary has ended so you know i think it's pretty much over for for canada and hong kong in terms of um, you know providing an entrepot for canadian business to access asian markets as it has been for so many decades what does that mean for china economically well, of course, Hong Kong is a relatively small uh, part of the Chinese economy. It used to be, you know, Hong Kong was very significant to the Chinese economy. Um, a lot of business went through Hong Kong. A lot of benefit to the Chinese economy came from Hong Kong-mediated business. But now the Chinese economy has grown, and the Hong Kong economy is suffering from this uh, lack of confidence and companies transferring up to uh, Shanghai. Or, or Singapore, for that matter, if, they, if they're really worried about uh, Hong Kong. And so, you know, there will be negative impacts on the Chinese economy, but it seems they prefer to impose, you know, to, to strengthen their political system and prevent dissent against the Chinese communist repression of, of citizens 
and enormous elite privilege by uh, sacrificing what benefits they may uh, derive from Hong Kong, and that's going to be increasingly the case, I think, in the years ahead. So as I think it's pretty much over, tragically to say, and I, I feel very sorry for, for the people in Hong Kong, many of whom don't identify as Chinese at all, but see their identity as, as Hong Kong. Uh, we haven't. Uh, we certainly know in the weeks past. There's been lots of chatter around Beijing and uh, the Olympics there in 2022, and whether uh, the West or Western countries should attend or not. When is this going to become an issue? When is this all of a sudden going to be news? I wish it was news now because you know I really feel that the athletes who have been training for the past four years to participate in an Olympics are going to be pretty let down when push comes to shove and we decide that it's not it's not uh, either politically proper or safe for them to go to China for for the Olympics and aside from which you know what sort of competition will there be if other like-minded democracies like the Czech Republic or Sweden or the United States uh decide that they're not going to go to the hockey championships because you know it's in China so i really feel that we should be coming up with an alternative for a world games, you know, all around the world where there are facilities that can accommodate, say, um, ski jumping or, or hockey or whatever, to ensure that the athletes don't get shafted at the very last minute. And I think that's what's going to happen, because I think there is absolutely no way when, the, when it comes around to the timing of the Olympics that Canada will be able to send our people there, aside from which in the parliamentary resolution condemning the Uyghur genocide, an amendment was made that was passed by our Democratic Parliament unanimously that uh, Canadians should not participate in the Olympics until the Uyghur genocide is, is ended. And, you know, is that likely to happen? I don't think so. We've talked about this before, Charles, uh, on on how this decision and then the Huawei CFO decision are going to intersect uh, around the same time. Uh, can you see this being a flashpoint? Is this going to be a tipping point, the, the Olympics? Well, I mean, I suppose if the Chinese government started to make some dramatic gestures, you know, you know we could consider the possibility of some limited participation in the Olympics. I think that you know, the athletes could go, maybe not attend the celebratory events like the opening and closing ceremonies that no um, Canadian, you know, Canadian senior government officials should go to to be uh, celebrating with their Chinese counterparts. You know, there's there's a conceivable sort of a compromise to make this kind of work, but I'm not sure that the Chinese, you know, sense of face would allow that to happen. So I'm I'm not optimistic about this. I, I sure hope I'm wrong. But I think we're really gradually edging into a Cold War with China. And, uh, you know, this is not uh, good news, especially after all we've gone through with COVID-19. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald laurier Institute, talking about everything from Hong Kong uh, to the Huawei CFO to the Beijing Olympics. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Enjoy the snow. Thanks so much. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.